In her 2018 book, Love Thy Body, writer Nancy Percy describes something called personhood theory. Personhood theory. And she describes some of its expressions in our culture today, some of the implications of personhood, personhood theory. Personhood theory, as she defines it, is a two-tiered view of the human be- being. One that sees no value in the living human body, but places all our worth in the mind or consciousness. Does that make sense? Two, two-tiered view of the human being that, that places the worth not in the body, that it has intrinsic value, but in the mind or consciousness. She continues, personhood theory thus presumes a very low view of the human body, which ultimately dehumanizes all of us. For if our bodies do not have inherent value, then a key part of our identity is devalued. This same body-slash-person dichotomy with its denigration of the body is the unspoken assumption driving secular views on euthanasia, sexuality, homosexuality, transgenderism, and a host of related ethical issues. This is what stands behind them or underneath these views. Now, you may be thinking to yourself... Uh, the same thought that a Christian college professor once expressed to Percy, uh, the writer. He said, it seems to me that people tend to go in the opposite direction. That they make an idol of the body. This man has in mind, of course, and to quote the writer, our ridiculously high value on physical appearance and fitness, on things like diets, Bodybuilding, cosmetics, plastic surgery, Botox, anti-aging treatments, and so on. Then the writer provides a response. To be obsessed with the body does not mean we accept it. She goes on to quote theologian Beth Felker Jones, The cult of the young body, the cult of the young body, the veneration of the airbrushed Media-produced body conceals a hatred for real bodies. Percy adds a second critique. The idea of instrumentalizing the body, which means treating it as a tool to be used and controlled or overcome and subdued instead of valuing it for its own sake. In light of our cultural context, brothers and sisters, friends, in light of the present day and age, I think that we have to ask ourselves this morning, how do we, how do you think about the body? How do you think about your body? Let's keep these things in mind as we turn to our main passage this morning, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. Hebrews 4, 4 through 10. There's a stack of black Bibles right there on the counter if you'd like to have a Bible and don't have one. If you've got a Bible app, go ahead and pull that up. Head over to Hebrews chapter 4, very close to the end of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 4. In the opening verses of Hebrews chapter 10, did I say 4? It's actually 10. 
you're like, that was not on my uh, daily reading <laughs> calendar. We're, we're way past that. Sorry, 10, chapter 10, verses 4. There's the 4. 4 through 10. So Hebrews chapter 10. You will see if you are there at Hebrews chapter 10, you will see that the author is continuing to hammer home the ultimate ineffectiveness of what we might call old covenant worship. Remember who this letter is written to. 2,000 years ago, a Jewish man who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah wrote a letter to a group of people, Jews who also confessed Jesus to be the Messiah. And he wrote this letter to them because he understood that they were struggling spiritually. He understood that people were coming into the church, that there were people on the outside of the church. Remember, these Jewish communities, especially if they were in what we call the diaspora of Jews, that's outside of Israel, these Jewish communities were tight-knit. They stayed together. So when you had these Jews confessing Jesus as Messiah, it created tensions within those Jewish communities. And there were pressures put on individuals who were beginning to follow this Nazarene, the sect of the Nazarene, as they called it. So this is what the writer is responding to. He wants them to understand that if they go back to to Judaism, specifically to the rituals, the practices of the temple in Jerusalem, which included the animal sacrifices, the grain offerings, all of those things, the rituals they were to bring, and the keeping of the law, including circumcision and a number of of things specifically for the Jewish law that marked them in the Old Testament as a distinct people, a different people, if they went back to that and forsook Christ, abandoned Christ, the one they had confessed, they would be placing themselves in, in in, in a position spiritually where there would be no hope for them because Christ is our only hope. That there was in effect, that, that, that the old way of doing things was now obsolete. In chapter 8, he talks about how that old covenant is fading, fading away. So, that's what the author has been doing, especially since the end of chapter 8 and into chapter 9 and 10. Chapters 9 and 10, he's really focusing in on what the Old Testament talked about in terms of the arrangement of the temple or the tent. The mobile mobile temple they had for a while called the Tent of Meeting or Tabernacle. He's really focusing in on how God designed it, trying to show how Christ subsequently fulfilled it. So if you look at chapter 10, look at verse 1, 2, 3. He's hammering home the ultimate ineffectiveness of this old covenant worship. Were things like the temple and the sacrificial system bad? No, they weren't bad. They were simply, look at verse 1. Shadows of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. If you, if you found a, a guy or gal that you really w- were attracted to and like, wow, blowing my socks off. You know, this person's amazing. Would you like to go out on a date with their shadow or them? Right? You, I don't think you'd want to go on a date with their shadow. You'd like chase it along the wall or whatever, you know? that's the same idea here. Why would they be opting for shadows when the, the, the true shadow casting form, that reality has now been made known? Look at how he continues in verse four. 
For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ, that's a word that just means Messiah, a Greek word for Messiah, anointed king. When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Here's the author of Hebrews. When he said, he's quoting somebody there, we'll get to that. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are according to the law, just to be clear. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. And I'm going to insert a, you see, you see, he does away with the first in order to establish the seconds. And by that second, that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So obviously the writer here has moved from the shadows, right? He's moved from the shadows to the true form. He's done this by, once again, pointing us to Jesus Christ. He is the true form. He is the fullness. This accords beautifully with with, with Paul in Colossians chapter 2, who is trying to help these Christians there deal with uh, Sabbath days and certain eating certain foods and and some of this Jewish mysticism that had crept into the church at Colossae, where, Jesus, where, where Paul says the same things. Those are but a shadow. Christ is the substance. Jesus is the substance. Here we have the same idea. He's moved us, he's pointed us to Christ once again as he's been doing throughout this. So remember, these are Jews who had confessed Jesus as Messiah, as Lord, but some of them were being lured back and in some cases pressured to return to the shadows quote-unquote, of the sacrificial system. This is why the author is doing what he's doing in this extended sermon we call Hebrews. He is showing them point by point why Jesus is so much greater, why Jesus is so much better than what came before. And as an aside, brothers and sisters, we can do this same thing with our world today. There is so much longing and hunger in our world today. And we should be equipped to be able to talk to people and show them why Jesus is so much better. And what he offers is so much better than what's being offered to you out there. To walk people through and and really show them how Christ fulfills their deepest longings. Their longing for truth. Their longing for justice. Their longing for hope. Their longing for peace. Their longing for meaning and significance. This is what the writer is doing specifically with his Jewish audience here. And he often does this, as we've seen throughout the book, by first demonstrating the ineffectiveness of the old system. That's what we see in verse 4, isn't it? That's how we started this morning. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's bringing us back, isn't it, to the Old Testament where we saw picture after picture throughout the Old Testament of that sacrificial system, of those bulls, of those goats, of those lambs, of those pigeons, right? 
of those turtle doves, of those whatever that were being sacrificed through the sacrificial system. If you stop, simply stop and think about it, and this is part of what he is saying to his readers, if you stop and simply think about it, how could an animal ultimately stand in for a human being? Such sacrifices were undoubtedly instructive. That's why God gave them. They were instructive to the people. They served as powerful reminders year after year of sin and the reality of sin and the consequences of sin and the justice of God in demanding that justice be met and satisfied. Just like we in our court system, we we demand that justice be satisfied. We demand that there be a recompense for wrongs done. How could God do any less than we? (laughs) He is so much greater. To a greater degree, he is a God of justice. And we praise him for that fact, don't we? We're glad that he's a God of justice. But we know we're in the crosshairs because we're guilty. We know we're in the crosshairs. So this system of animal sacrifice was reminding them year after year that there was a bloody and a violent penalty for sin. And that a life had to be given in the place of, because of sin against a holy God. The, 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 the issue though, in terms of the ineffectiveness, is that these were human beings made in the image of God. How could animal blood, how could animal death atone for a human being made in the image of God, their sin against a holy God, an eternal God? You see, if you just stopped and thought about it, I think the Jews would have understood there was something lacking in this regard. But please look again at where the author goes next. So first he argues for the ineffectiveness of the system, right? The ineffectiveness of the system itself. But where he goes next, he turns to Psalm 40. Psalm 40. He turns to Psalm 40 in order to argue now, not from the ineffectiveness of the old, but in light of the anticipated effectiveness of the new. Anticipated, right? Something was coming. Something was coming. And it would be radically effective. He mentioned this in chapter 8 when he talked about a new covenant that was coming. So I want you to see that there are actually two arguments here in in verses 5 through 10. Both are based on Psalm 40. What's the difference in time between the book of Hebrews and Psalm 40? About a thousand years. Yeah, about a thousand years between these two uh, pieces of writing. So the first of these two arguments in verses 5 through 10, the first is the main overarching argument. It's the one that gets the most ink here. He picks up a a number of times. Uh, It's concerned with doing God's will. Sorry. It's concerned with, yes, doing God's will. The second argument in this passage is less obvious, but still critical. It's concerned with how we do God's will. Let's unpack each of these ideas. So, as you probably noticed, the idea of verse 4 flows directly in verse, into verses 5, 6, and 8. You see that? 
There's the mention in verse 4 of it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And then then he goes on and talks about in verses 5 and 6 and 8 all these sacrifices. Burn offerings, sin offerings, sacrifices. All of these are are focused on the idea of animal sacrifices. So if the writer has said so matter-of-factly in verse 4 that such sacrifices are of no ultimate or eternal value when it comes to atonement and forgiveness can he back that up from scripture it's one thing for me just to walk into a jewish synagogue 2000 years ago and say hey everything you're doing here right everything when you go to the temple and sacrifice those offerings and you you spend money on these animals and you sacrifice them for your sins you know what ultimately it's of no value I would probably, I'd probably be taken and like run out of town, right? Or, or, or beat, beat down. Cause I'm talking against God's prescribed order of things. And yet, this is exactly what the author is saying. He's saying, think about the big picture. These, these are ineffective. So how does he back this up from scripture? Well, look at what he does here. Verses five through ten. He tackles this issue by appealing to Psalm 40 verses six through eight. Notice the two elements of his main point. First, as the psalmist indicates, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Or in Psalm 40, you have not delighted in these things. He goes on in verse 6 of our main chapter. He says, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. So twice he's saying that. And then, of course, verse 8 is just kind of the catch-all. I quoted to you Psalm 40. Guess what? Verse 8, I'm going to go over it. When he said, you've taken pleasure in either sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. You see, he's just pounding at home. The psalmist, as he goes on to argue, uh, the psalmist is arguing in Psalm 40, a thousand years earlier, that at the very least, there is something that God desires or is pleased with that is even more important than these kinds of offerings. That seems like a reasonable conclusion, doesn't it? From Psalm 40. If the writer there is saying, look, you've not desired that I bring animal sacrifice to you. You have no pleasure in this. Then he's setting us up to say, what does God desire? He's preparing us to see what God actually does desire. That's where the second element of this first argument comes in. In the statement, verse 7, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. We find something even more valuable than multiplied offerings or sacrifices. That's what the writer of Psalm 40 is saying. That's what the writer of Hebrews a thousand years later is picking up on. There is something more valuable than these sacrifices. What is more valuable? A yielded spirit before God. A surrendered heart before God. We find a heart that in the words of Jesus hungers and thirsts for righteousness. That's the kind of heart that the psalmist is describing. That's the kind of heart that's caught the attention of the writer of Hebrews a thousand years later when he sees that he's saying, you know what? You've not desired that I come and bring sacrifice. You've not, you've had no pleasure in these kinds of offerings. 
But what you do have pleasure in is a yielded, surrendered heart. You have pleasure in the fact that I love, that I hunger, I love you and hunger for, thir- I hunger and thirst for righteousness. Listen to the actual Hebrew text of Psalm 40. We'll put it on the screen here for you. Here's the Hebrew text of Psalm 40 verses 7 and 8. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. Wow. Going back to the actual psalm really fills out that picture, doesn't it? The beautiful heart being described there. What does the writer mean when he says, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me? Well, if you went back to Psalm 40, you would see that the ancient title of that psalm, that title information indicates that the writer of that psalm was David. King David. King David. When we know that fact, and we consider words like scroll and book, and when we keep in mind the theme here of heartfelt obedience... It sure seems like a good case can be made that David here is referring to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Look what it says in Deuteronomy 17 about directions, guidance, laws for the king. And when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. The law given by God through Moses. And this copy shall be with him. This scroll shall be with him. And he shall read it in all the days of his life. That he may learn to fear the Lord Yahweh his God. By keeping all the words of this law and these statutes. And doing them that his heart may not be lifted up. You see David is writing as a king. And he's writing as a king who has fulfilled the the words of Deuteronomy 17. That it is written about him in the book because he's the king. And the whole purpose of writing down that copy of the law for the king is that he would keep it close to him. Not only physically, but more so spiritually. That it would be in his heart. That it would affect him. That his heart would not be lifted up. That love of God and fear of God would be characteristics that define him and his reign over the people of God. Now, this is precisely, so it's it's as king over Israel, it's as the anointed one, which in Hebrew is Mashiach. He is the Messiah, little m, David, Messiah anointed one king. And he is writing this about God's will over and above burnt offerings and sin offerings. Make sense? Right? It's not just David the shepherd boy. With the sheep and the lamb. No, it's David as king. He's writing this as Mashiach. To desire God's will over burnt offerings and sin offerings. So as the author of Hebrews concludes from Psalm 40 and verse 9, he does away with the first, the animal sacrifices, in order to establish the second, the king's doing of the will of God. This is precisely where the second argument from from Psalm 40 comes into play. The second argument in this verses 5 through 10 of Hebrews 10. I know this is a lot, but I want you to understand this passage because it comes together so beautifully. 
This is precisely where the second argument comes in. And this is the less obvious argument. He doesn't spend as much time on this argument. But look back at Hebrews chapter 10 verse 5. Verse 5 says, Consequently, when Christ, when the Messiah came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Now, What's clear to scholars about this passage is that the writer of Hebrews, as he quotes here, he's quoting a translation of the Old Testament that was in Greek. We call that the Septuagint. It's just an old translation that was made from Hebrew, the original Hebrew. It was translated into Greek. Why did that have to be? Because you remember Alexander the Great conquered so much of that known world around the Mediterranean basin, that many people began to speak Greek instead of Hebrew or Aramaic eventually. Greek became what we call the lingua franca, right? It was the common language. The common Greek called Koine Greek. was the co- That means common, the common language. So many Jews couldn't even read their own Bibles. Right? They had to, they, they, that's why they translated into Greek. And this was, this was, uh, well before the time of Jesus that this was translated into Greek. Well, we know the author is quoting from the Greek Old Testament here. How do we know that? If you turn back to Psalm 40 in your Bible, if you were, you don't have to, but if you were to turn back to Psalm 40 in your Bible, you would find a translation that's based directly off the Hebrew text. And the Hebrew text in Psalm 40, verse 6, does not say, but a body you have prepared for me. doesn't say that. It says, but you have given me an open ear. Now, actually, if you were to translate the Hebrew very literally, it's a very strange expression. I don't think it's found anywhere else in the Hebrew Bible. The expression there is actually, literally, ears you have dug for me. Ears you have dug for me. That's interesting, isn't it? (laughs) So, ears you have dug for me, a body you have prepared for me. Like, wait a minute, how do we make sense of these two translations? Well, it appears to though, it appears that those who translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, they saw in Psalm 40 verse 6 a statement, they rightly saw a statement about God as creator. A God God as the one who gave us ears to hear, right? They may have also understood this strange phrase about dug out ears to be a Hebrew figure of speech for both hearing and obeying. This is the difficulty when we are so far away from this time period. We don't know the figures of speech. We don't know the idioms and things like that of that day. We can be sure that these Greek guys who translated, translated Hebrew into Greek of the Old Testament, they knew what they were doing. They were, they were quite, they were, they were eminent scholars. So we have to think about why they chose this. Well, if they saw something here about God as creator, about this phrase as maybe something about hearing and obeying, that is God created our ears to hear his will and bodies to do his will, then that idea certainly fits with the theme of the heartfelt obedience that you see in these verses here. So they've taken this idea of ear and they've extended it to the entire creation of the body. 
One who hears the will of God to do the will of God. I only take you on that little translation rabbit trail there because you might go back and read Psalm 40 and go, that's not what this said in Hebrews. And you, you, I also want you to be equipped to understand how some of these translation issues get worked out, how we understand them. Because somebody might use that against you and say, see, the Bible doesn't even make sense. It's like contradicting each other and it's misusing the Old Testament. No, if we step back, we see that there's something bigger going on here. So the, the translators the, uh, of, the, of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek have brought out the sense of this body prepared for us that includes the ear to hear, but also the body to do, to carry this out. And it's this idea that drives the second argument in our main passage, an argument spelled out in verse 10. Look at verse 10. And by that will, what will is that? It's the will of God accomplished by the Messiah, the King. The will of God accomplished by the Messiah. By that will we have been sanctified, set apart through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There it is, the body, the body. You see, this is not the main kind of argument of the passage, but the the writer says, there's a verse there. It says, but a body you have prepared for me. All he does is picks up that word body in verse 10 and drops it in there. He drops it right in there. It's through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all that we have been sanctified. So this emphasis here on the literal body of Jesus is not a new idea here in chapter 10, is it? You read Hebrews along with me through our, in our reading plan as we've been going through it. You read Hebrews. You know way back in chapter 2, verse 14, the author was clear about why this was so important. This is what the author said. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. That's all of us. We share in flesh and blood. We have bodies, physical forms, right? Just as they share, they share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That is God the Son, existing from eternity past, entered in and t- took on a human form like us. He shared in flesh and blood. Why? So that through death, his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death That is the devil, the adversary. As Psalm 40 hinted at a thousand years before Jesus, the Messiah would accomplish the will of God through the body that God gave him with ears to hear and a body to obey. You see, David wrote those words, but as we know with so many of David's words in the Psalms, God was actually using them to give voice to what the Messiah would do in its full, in his fullness. He would fulfill those words ultimately. The words that David wrote as Messiah, little m, would be fulfilled by the son of David, capital M, Messiah. That's what we see here. Uh, the Messiah would accomplish the will of God through the body that God gave him. Something animal sacrifices could never achieve. And that truth has been fulfilled, as we see in verse 10, bodily, once for all, in Jesus, the son of David, in an amazing way that even David could not have foreseen. 
sorry. Brothers and sisters, friends, listen. It's so important that we grasp and we rehearse and we rejoice over the fact that the incarnation, that's a ten, you know, big $10 word, right? Incarnation. What does it mean? It simply means enfleshing. The enfleshing of God the Son. We need to grasp and rehearse and rejoice over the fact that the incarnation, the very thing we celebrate at Christmas, took place in order to redeem our bodies through His body. I'm stressing this because we live in a culture that this idea is under attack. The value of human bodies is under attack. That we have to be careful when we think about what this actually means. That Christ was given a body. That the Son was given a body. He was given a body to redeem our bodies through His body. Verses like 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, they reveal that it didn't take long in the early church for this idea to come under attack. Pretty much right away, it was under attack. As Christianity moved out into the Greek and Roman world, this idea was under attack. Why was that? Because some in the ancient world believed that matter, that physical stuff, right? Matter, including our bodies, was essentially evil. Therefore, for these people, Jesus couldn't have really come in the flesh. His body must have been some kind of illusion. Couldn't have, he couldn't really have had a body because bodies are evil. They wanted to believe in Jesus, so they modified the belief. We call that docetism. It appeared that Jesus looked like a person in a body. This is an expression of what we would later call Gnosticism. These things are still affecting us even today. We face similar thinking today. Not that the body is necessarily evil, but that it is secondary. That your body is only you and only valuable because of your inner self. And if your inner self is out of whack with your body in whatever way, your inner self always wins. And the body must be subjugated, must be changed to match the inner self. It couldn't be that your inner self is messed up. (laughs) It couldn't be that your inner self is out of whack, right? Is broken, is struggling, is veering. The inner self is, is holy in some respect to our modern culture. Therefore, the body has to be made to do what what the inner self wants. Or the inner self will have its way no matter if the body is destroyed or hurt or whatever because the body is expendable. Even from in the womb, the body is expendable if we don't deem it a person. You see? Body is expendable. But Christ Jesus came not simply to redeem the inner you. He came to redeem the whole you. You. He came to redeem your body as well as the inner you. Your body is an essential part of who you are. God made us to be embodied. This is a fact we've struggled with in the church. Folk Christianity has has attacked this idea. Right? When you die, you're going to be in the presence of God like a spirit forever. Wrong! That couldn't be further from the truth of the Bible. What is this idea that we're going to be in heaven forever as spirits? 
That is so anti-biblical because it attacks the teaching of Scripture about your body. That your body is just as much you as your inner self. You don't separate those two things. They go together because God made you to be an embodied being. Make sense? And when we, in the between time, if I were to die today, I believe the scripture teach I would be with Jesus. Paul says that in Philippians chapter 1. I desire to depart and be with Jesus. That is far better. But I'm going to stay in the body, he says, for your sake, to his readers. Because he knows there's more work to do that he can only do through the body in their midst. But when, if I were to die, if Paul were to die when he, after he wrote that letter, he would be with Jesus. But he would be, as he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, naked. And he makes it very clear, if you go back and read 2 Corinthians 5, that is not the ideal state. It is not ideal for us to be naked. That's right. And I mean disembodied. Disembodied. That's why that passage is so wonderful in bringing out the beauty of the fact that God will clothe us with a new dwelling. The old tent, a new dwelling that's coming. The glorified body. Your body is an essential part of who you are. God made you to be embodied. While God the Son always was, is, and will be God the Son. His existence as Jesus Christ would not make sense without the body that was prepared for him. The body which he sacrificed on the cross in love for you and for me. I'd love to have you consider two points for application. What does that mean? It means for truly living out what we're hearing here. Being doers of the word not simply hearers who deceive ourselves. Two points for application. First of all, take a look. First, rejoice this Christmas in the glorious reality of Christ's physical body. (laughs) Rejoice in that glorious reality. Don't simply rejoice in the incarnation as a theological idea or spiritual truth. Oh, the incarnation. Oh, it's such a profound and deep, Deep doctrine. I love it. Right? I'm checking off the boxes on my, you know, spiritual theological knowledge test. What does this church believe about the incarnation? Oh, good. We can come here. You believe the right things. As a theological idea or a spiritual truth, wonderful. Grasp it. Cling to it. Hold to it. But also rejoice in the nitty gritty of human bodies. Jesus was not born with some kind of antiseptic body. His mother had to change his diaper. He had snot and pus and gas and indigestion and fat. He sweat. He got tired. He got sore. He got cold. He got sick. And he very well may have snored. This Christmas... Rejoice that in the manger there is most likely a crying baby with a dirty diaper. Why rejoice over that? Because these 
these truths are precious in that they remind us that Hebrews 2.17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. You see, we rejoice over those things because that's who we are. Because that's what we're like. Those are the glorious things about our body. The things we go, oh, I don't want to hear about that. That can't possibly be true. But when you create distance between your body and the body of Jesus, that he was born into this world, you're creating distance between you and the work he effected for you. He took your place. He stood for you. And he could only do so because he had pus and snot and gas and he sweat. You see? It's funny, isn't it? They're laughing about it. (laughs) But it really speaks to something powerful and glorious that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect to be the sacrifice for us, to be our faithful high priest. And because he was made like us, guess what? We can become like him for all eternity. Isn't that wonderful? Amazing. Second Second point of application, live each day in light of the value of the body Jesus died to redeem. Live each day in light of the value of the body Jesus died to redeem. Yes, this body, take a look at your body, put your hands up right now. Take a look at your hands, right? There they are, you got your skin. Some of us it's nice and tight, right? It looks good. Others of us it's like, oh, it's getting really loose, right? It's starting to... Ah, that's a reminder. It's a reminder that the body is winding down, isn't it? The body is winding down. In the words of 2 Corinthians 4, 16, our outer self is wasting away. Our outer self is wasting away. And yes, it will one day die, but then be glorified. But right now, today, this morning, your body is a tremendous gift. If it were not a gift from God, verses like these, take a look, would make no sense. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope, says Paul, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, that is the parts of your body, to sin as instruments, tools to be used by sin for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Present your members, the parts of your body, to God as instruments for righteousness. You see, I can take these hands 
And I can do with them things that hurt, things that dishonor God. But I can take these hands and I can use them to care and love and help and serve things that greatly honor God and glorify God. I can take this mouth that makes words and I can use it to tear somebody down, to destroy them from the inside out. Or I can use this mouth and this tongue that form words and I can use it to glorify God immensely as I speak words of life and hope and love and comfort. Those are just some of the ways that you can use the body that God gave you. It is with my body that I'm sharing God's word with you now. And it is with your bodies that you're hearing that word. You see? Just think about all of the amazing God-honoring things we can do with our bodies. No matter the condition of yours, no matter the challenges you face physically, will you give thanks this Christmas for the gift of your body. I sure hope you will. I sure hope that you will. But we can forget, can't we, about all of the heinous and hurtful things that we can also do with our bodies. If each day we are to, in the words of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, if we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, then we need the transformation that only Jesus can bring to our hearts because of his death and resurrection. That's what we need desperately. Power from the inside, inside out. Though we so often use our bodies to glorify ourselves, Jesus used his body to glorify God. We heard that this morning, didn't we? A body you have prepared for me. And what did he do with that body? It's by the offering of his body on the cross that we've been sanctified. Set apart for God. Out of the darkness into the light. And because he did that, rising again from the dead, triumphing over death, we can experience change today. Inner change today. And one day, outer change gloriously. We look forward to that day, the redemption of our bodies, as Paul called it in Romans chapter 8. The redemption of our bodies. And this change is possible only by faith. That's it. You're not going to earn a new body. You're not going to earn inner renewal. You simply trust to receive that from God. Trusting in what He wants to give you. Trusting in what He did. And trusting in who He is. Christ the Lord. We heard the angels testify of it, didn't we? In the earlier scriptures when He was born. Christ the Lord. That's our confession. It's always been our confession as believers. The simplest confession gets right to the heart of it. Jesus is Lord. Will you trust Him for that change this morning? For the change that he wants to bring to your life. The change that he wants to continue in your life. Will you trust him for that? And will you because of that steward your body well? Don't abuse it. Take care of it. Be careful with it. God's only given you one. It's a stewardship he wants you to use in this world for his glory. 
Be careful what the world says to you about the value of the body. Look to God, trust in his word, and let's glorify him, both spirit and soul and body, for all the days that he gives us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.